series uh, over uh, covering the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And the sermon this morning is titled Fire and Rain because last week we saw God rain down fire from the heavens to show his provision. And today we see the rain. Uh, The series is called Faithfulness in a Faithless Age. And as we look out in our culture today, sometimes we can wonder, um, has God changed? Is he still faithful to us? But we find that God is faithful to us. And he's always left a remnant of his people here, uh, like Elijah, and uh, like you might find in this church, who are seeking to be transformed by God's faithfulness as they walk with him. God is still moving toward his people with tremendous grace. And in this passage, we see God do two remarkable things. If you have not been journeying with us, as John just read that passage for us, you might not be uh, amazed by God's grace. But there's two things that happen in this text that are actually quite remarkable. First of all, is God sends rain. He sends rain. That's remarkable because it had not rained in Israel in three and a half years. Three and a half years with no precipitation, no dew on the ground, nothing. This type of drought is nothing other than devastating. It's something that we really can't relate to today in 2022 in Cary, North Carolina. And to think about this as an American, you'd have to go back to the 1930s, to this era that's called the Dust Bowl era, where one survivor, Hugh Sidey, wrote this for Time Magazine describing these days, these dust storms. He said, we could see it coming in my part of western Iowa. At first there was a yellow haze across the horizon, and then as the dust climbed in the hot sky, it became orange and finally brown, and the sun was dimmed. In the first minutes, we stood in mute groups just just within, and, and the windows were slammed shut. In the first minutes, we stood there The windows were slammed shut despite the 100-degree heat, and the women pushed strips of rags around the frames and sills in a pathetic effort to keep the monster at bay. It never worked. The dust found the crevices and the loose joints and piled up in the corners and drifted through the air. Sometimes you could hear it on the roof. We can't imagine this kind of devastation But when a drought for three and a half years hits a country, it's nothing other than devastating, particularly a nation that is completely dependent on the agriculture. The entire economy was agrarian. You had women and men and children that had died. It was brutal to live in Israel. And so the fact that God sends the rain means that God is lifting his curse from the people. He had cursed Israel because they had gone after foreign gods. And so God in an affront to Baal. Baal said he was the rain god, the rain king. God said, okay, I want to show you that your, where your idols ultimately will lead you. Your idols ultimately will lead you to nothing. And so God withheld the rain for this time to show the people that they should not follow idols, but they should follow him. So God is lifting up the covenant curses by bringing rain finally on Israel. So when it rains in verse 41, and that begins to happen, Throughout this passage, you find God doing something remarkable. The second thing that's amazing in this story is that God is moving with grace toward an evil person. If you don't know anything about Ahab, he's one of the worst people in the Bible. Morally, 
he is on the top five list of the worst people. He's really, really bad. He's there with Herod. He's there with Pilate. He's, he's there with whoever you might want to put there that has done these terrible things in the history of God's people. Ahab, we learn in 1 Kings 16.30, he's described as the worst king in Israel up to this point, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than all who went before him. And the people who went before him had done terrible things. And in this passage, what God is doing is he is moving with his grace through Elijah toward Ahab. He's giving Ahab an opportunity to have a front row seat at his redemption. Somehow, Ahab is not beyond the grace of the gospel. There's still room in the merciful heart of God for Ahab, even though he had been one of the ringleaders to lead his people astray. There's still an opportunity here for Ahab to repent. But the question is, how will he respond So what we find in this passage is that God is still faithful. He's still moving toward his people with redemptive grace. And we have an opportunity. We can respond to God like Elijah models for us with humility. Or we can respond like Ahab with half-heartedness, which ultimately will impact the rest of our lives. So God is moving with his grace We have an opportunity to respond. There's a fork in the road. You can respond with humility or half-heartedness. And whatever road you take, it will impact the rest of your eternal destiny. So first of all, the movement of God's grace in fire and in rain. So first of all, the fire, we're going to just recover what we talked about last week for just a second because it comes in that context. They're still in this section on the top of Mount Carmel. God has just rained down fire on the altar. Now, why did God do that? Why did he send fire? Well, he was responding to Elijah's prayer. God answers prayer. Elijah had prayed for two things. God, I want you to send fire so that everyone will know that you are the true God. And I want you to send fire to turn the hearts of the people back to you. So God sends the fire, first of all, to show the people that he's the true and living God. This is supposedly going to be this heavyweight battle, you know, this pay-per-view event. It's going to be these two heavyweights going at it against each other. God, Yahweh versus Baal, who's going to win? It's on Baal's home turf. It's on the top of a mountain. It's in Baal's backyard. Baal is favored to win. 850 people say Baal's going to win. One person says God's going to win. And it's super disappointing if you bought pay-per-view for that because it ends in like three seconds. God walks up, and it's a, it's a knockout in the first five seconds. God just absolutely, there is no contest. Baal is an invented reality in people's minds, held up by the system around them. God just cuts right through it and wins. He shows the people that he's the true God. He's the true God. That's the first reason why he sends fire. The second reason why he sends fire is because He's answering Elijah's prayer to turn the hearts of the people back to him. God wants our hearts. He longs for repentance. That's why he's doing this. He knows that it's no good for us to follow after idols and then to ultimately die apart from him, to ultimately live our lives unfulfilled and unsatisfied. And so God sends the fire because he wants our hearts. He wants to show us that he cares for us. 
2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In fact, God is so patient, he longs for repentance so badly that ultimately he sends fire, not on just the sacrifice on the top of Mount Carmel, but he sends fire on himself in the second person of the Trinity. He sends fire on his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus would bear the covenant curses for us so that we can have life in him. God wants us back so badly. He wants our hearts so badly that he's willing to inflict the punishment that he set up the system and he said, this is what is righteous. And when we didn't fulfill it, God himself paid the penalty for our sin. He became the final sacrifice. He bore God's wrath so that we would never have to if we trust in him. Why did God go through the cross? 1 Kings 18, 37, that his people may know you, O Lord, that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So the fire is the first big demonstration of God's grace, that he's after our hearts. The second big demonstration is in the rain. So notice something very important in this story. It is God who sets up the curses for sin. It's his idea, and it's also God who removes the curses for sin. This is some important theology. It's God who gives the curses, and it's God who removes the curses. In this story, he sets up the curse of drought, and he removes the curse by sending rain. But take, back, take a step back and think about redemptive history with me and how this works. Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 3, well known. They were created to walk with God. They sinned, they fell. And so God set up the curses upon them. So what would God do? In this story, God works not directly. He's not embodied in the story. He's not in the story yet, incarnate. He works through the prophet Elijah. But one day he will send his son who will be in the story. He will be incarnate. And to remove the great curses that he had placed on us, the greatest curse, ultimately this sin would end in death. He sends his own son, the one who sets up the curse system because of his righteousness, then through righteousness lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, and he absorbs the flood of God's wrath so that we will never have to experience that if we trust in him. We sang about it this morning in On Christ the Solid Rock, where it says, his oath, his covenant, his blood, Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. God sends the flood of the curses on himself and his own heart. He sends his son in the second person of the Trinity to take on the curses that he said that we deserve. It is God who sets up the curses. It's God who brings the curses on himself so that we could walk with him. In ancient India, there's a story of a king who issued an order for anyone who disobeyed that they had to have their eyes gouged out. And it turns out that the first violator of this new law was the king's own son. So the king had to think about what to do. And all of his royal advisors told him that he had to uphold the law because this is the law that he had set up according to the system, the righteousness that he required. 
He stood for justice, but he was also a father who loved his son. But because he wanted everyone to be equal under the law, he allowed his son to go before the executioner. When the executioner gouged out the first eye, the son's cry was so excruciating that the father could not bear it. And so the father halted the proceedings. The minister of justice again warned him that the punishment had to continue, but the father still demanded that the executioner stop. So then the king ordered the executioner, instead of gouging out his son's second eye, to gouge out one of his eyes instead. Instead of the son having both of his eyes gouged out, the father took the curses so the son could live while still being able to see. And so the one-eyed king demonstrated justice and mercy at the same time. He took the punishment upon himself so his son could live and could see. Jesus is like that one-eyed king. He set up the system. He set up the laws. He wants them to be followed. They are according to his justice, according to his righteousness. And when we did not follow him, he came and he took upon himself the penalty that we rightly deserved so that we could live, so that we could have a life, so that we could follow him. Now you wonder what happened with this son. What did he do with the grace that he had been shown by the king, his father? Well, there's two potential scenarios. I don't, I don't think we know what happened to the son. But there's two ways that you can imagine the son might have responded. Typically, when we're sharing the gospel with someone, we ask the question, well, how would someone live if, if they'd receive mercy and grace like this? Well, one option, and it's very possible, is that the son, in view of his father's grace, would be changed. He would be transformed. He would let go of his sin, and he would turn, and he would say, Father, I want to follow you. I'm sorry. There would be repentance. There would be humility. On the other side, there's the possibility that the son's experience that day, while moved by his father's grace, surely and on that day, he is moved. But his, the movement that happens in his soul is only half-hearted. He's still more committed to himself than to his father. And so later on in life, it turns out he didn't change. He didn't respond to the grace of his father. He went on and he, with one eye, continued to live a rebellious life. Just because you have been shown mercy and grace does not mean it's changed your life. It could mean that you just had an awesome experience one day in church or at camp or, um, you know, listening to something online. I don't know. So we go, we go on in the sermon, we have two opportunities to respond, two different ways. It's a fork in the road. You can respond with humility like Elijah, or you can respond with half-heartedness like Ahab. First of all, Elijah models the first way, the road that we want to take, the response of humility. So this is the second point, two ways to respond, humility or half-heartedness. So Elijah shows the way of humility. Elijah sees the grace and the power of God. He beholds it, and he finds that he is a man who is under authority. He's under the authority of God. God sends fire, and God sends rain. 
God sets up the system where we deserve to be cursed. God is the one who removes the curses. And so Elijah finds himself living as one who he knows he is under God's authority. Elijah had hopes and dreams. He had things that he wanted to do in life. But all of those things were now subservient to to God. He took his life and he lived it before God. He was marked by humility. Where God said to go somewhere, he went. Where God said to say something, he said it. You can see the humility and the physical posture of Elijah before God in verse 42. While Ahab is feasting, and we'll get to that in a second, Elijah is on the ground praying. Elijah's humility manifests itself in an attitude of prayer. Prayer is that gut-level response of the person who knows they're under the authority of God, that God loves them, that God is powerful, and therefore we pray. Humility is a right view of yourself. It is, it is thinking of yourself rightly in accordance with what is true. And most fundamentally what is true of you and I is that God is great and that we are not that great. In fact, we created in God's image as image bearers became sinners. And so the fundamental understructure of our view of ourselves is that God is great, we are not that great, and yet God loves us in Jesus Christ. And that is amazing. And so in response to that, what do we do? Well, God didn't just like give us his grace. He actually invites us into a relationship with him. And so in that relationship with him, we become people who pray. We pray. Prayer is just talking to our Father in heaven who loves us. And as we grow in humility, we grow in prayer. So Elijah is humble, and so he prays. And let's look more about how he prays, the way that Elijah prays. This prayer that flows from humility, what does it look like? Well, first of all, Elijah prays with faith and expectation that God will work. He's praying with expectation. He sends his servant back seven times to look for the rain clouds forming. Seven times. He keeps on praying. He involves other people in prayer. He involves other people in praying in a persistent way. He doesn't give up. He also, this is really important, he notices when God answers his prayer. He is hunting for evidence that God is faithful. He believes that God is faithful, and therefore he is looking for the prayer to be answered. And he goes back seven times. And now this illustration of a cloud that is the size of a man's hand forming is this illustration of what it looks like to see the beginnings, the very beginnings of answered prayer. Sometimes when we pray, it takes a long time. We have to, it feels like we're going back over and over and over again. More importantly, when God does answer our prayer, it may or may not look exactly like we asked for it. But when he answers our prayer, do we recognize that this is God at work in our lives? Are we hunting for evidence of the resurrection? Hunting for evidence that God is alive? Or when good things happen in our lives, do we just explain them away as, you know, well, something like that is bound to happen? Or we just expect things to go well in life because we work hard and we do the best we can. And when they go well, we think that's normal. Do we even notice when God answers our prayers? Elijah notices when God answers prayer, even at the very beginning stages 
He's looking for evidence that God is at work. The next evidence of his humility that flows from his humility is that he's full of grace. In this passage, he is ministering to Ahab. It is Elijah and Ahab. That is incredible to me. And this guy was like public enemy number one for the people of God. And yet Elijah, in this moment, because God is moving toward Ahab, Elijah is moving toward Ahab. Elijah spends this entire section in the hope that Ahab might just see the grace of God. He's still the king of Israel. There's still an opportunity for him to repent. Elijah has not just received God's grace, he is being transformed by God's grace so that he's treating other people with grace. That's incredible to me. There are people in my life that, frankly, live on my street that, uh, that, that bother me and have made decisions that I think are really bad in life. And, some, and, and I have a hard time even being gracious to them. And here is Elijah with Ahab on Mount Carmel, public enemy number one, and he is responding to the grace of God, moving toward Ahab. It's evidence just how great God's grace is. So how will Ahab, on the other hand, respond to God's grace? Well, he shows us the way of half-heartedness. So we find here with Ahab, first of all, is we find feasting without worship. Feasting without worship. Before the rain arrives, Elijah calls Ahab to the summit of Mount Carmel and tells him, let's have a feast. Let's eat and drink because God is going to end these curses upon Israel. And you know Ahab was excited about that because this could definitely ruin a kingdom. It could definitely ruin the reign of a king. You presided over the worst drought in the history of Israel because you led the people astray. So, so Ahab is, is thrilled that God is ending the drought. Thrilled. And he's thrilled too that he hasn't been able to eat and drink that freely in a while. He's been on this mission up on the top of the mountain. I mean, he's going to eat. He's going to dine. He's so excited about this meal. And he's excited about the blessings of God. But that joy does not go beyond his stomach to his soul. Some are only interested in what God can do for them, what God can bring them in life. They're happy to die and happy to experience the blessings of God. But they think of God like a butler and not like a king. They just want God for the blessings. When Ahab considers God's grace, he is half-hearted. We also see experience without repentance. Experience without repentance. So before the rain comes in verse 44, Elijah tells his servant to tell Ahab something very important that probably saves his life. He says, prepare your chariot and go down. Do not let the rain stop you. So Ahab takes the counsel of the servant and gets in his chariot and goes down. Now when he goes down, unless you know the geography of the area, you don't really get the significance. So he has to pass through the valley of Jezreel to get to the city of Jezreel. The valley of Jezreel is famous for flash flooding. It's cut out like a canyon. So in the time of a flash flood, it's a, it's a terrible place to be. In fact, this is the place where Sisera in Judges 4, who was the commander of the army of Canaan, actually died in a flash flood. His chariot got caught in the mud, 
and the Israelites came and killed him. This is how God brought justice on Sisera. This is the very place where that had happened. Everybody back then knew, don't get caught in the valley of Jezreel in a rainstorm in your chariot. Now, we wouldn't know that, but it's just a bad thing to do. And so God graciously really potentially saves Ahab's life. He gives him a heads up. I'm about to send a lot of rain. Get yourself to the city of Jezreel. And so Ahab has this experience. You know as he's riding in his chariot, he's thinking, oh my gosh. If I would have left 30 minutes later, I could be dead right now. He had an experience with God, but there was no repentance. He had that that first blush of, wow, God, is that's pretty great. But it didn't go deep. He didn't, he didn't repent. He wants God to be his advisor, but not his Lord. He's half-hearted. The third thing we see in Ahab is we find leadership without following. So this is one of those really weird stories in the Old Testament. There's a number of them. But where we basically see like a preview of, I think, the DC comic character Flash, where Elijah's filled with God's spirit and somehow runs fast enough to outrun a chariot all the way to Jezreel. And the interesting symbolism here is as God fills Elijah with the spirit and he's running like 40 miles an hour or something crazy, like a cheetah, he's running ahead of the chariot. So the whole way... The whole way that Ahab is riding on his chariot in the rainstorm and God is saving his life, he has the backside of Elijah to look at the entire way. As God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is enabling his prophet to run faster than Ahab's chariot can go. You might think of the psalm, some may trust in horses and some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. God is saying that I am far greater My leadership is far greater than anything that you can imagine, and you need to follow me. Ahab finds himself in the position of being led by God, but at the end of the day, he is unwilling to follow God. He's unwilling to follow God. We find God's leadership in his life without Ahab actually following God's leadership in his life. And that's another mark of someone who has a half-hearted response. We call up prayers. We ask for wisdom. God gives us that wisdom, maybe through community, maybe through the scriptures. And once we make the decision, we're like, boom, that was awesome. Now I'm going to do my own thing. We want God to bless us. We want him to be like a genie for us, but not like our Lord. Ahab is half-hearted. As Ahab takes this ride to Jezreel, we need to understand that this is the closest that he comes to the grace of God. He has a chance right here. Somehow God still cares about him. Ahab can repent. This is the moment. This is a turning point. This is the fork in the road. Which way will he go? And what we find in this moment is that you can move forward out of that decision in two possible, two different, very different directions. So first of all, the direction that Ahab takes. So unfortunately, when he gets back to the summer palace in Jezreel, 
someone is waiting for him. It's his wife, Jezebel. She's there. She's waiting for him. As he returns to the palace and he goes back into the, me- the bedchamber, she is the most influential person in his life. If you think about the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, one soil, uh, it says the seed was spread upon the road and the birds of the air came and snatched up that seed before it could be produced. That, that snatching up is also akin to the work of Satan. Jezebel is the bird on Ahab's road. And she snatches up that free offer of the gospel and leads him astray. Her questions are unending. How could you let God win? How could you let my friend, all, my friends, all these prophets, 850 of them to Asherah and Baal, all get slaughtered? How could you have let this happen? She's not excited at all to hear about the feast that he enjoyed at the top of Mount Carmel with Elijah that Yahweh gave to them when Yahweh won the battle. She's not excited about that at all. And so she leads him astray. What can we learn? Well, we can learn that if you are not married and you're thinking about getting married, who you marry is really important. And I'm not kidding. Uh, Who you go back home to every night, who you share a bed with, they have tremendous influence in your life. Tremendous. Most girls are not named Jezebel anymore. Um, So you're going to have to be a little more discerning than that if you're a guy. I have met very few people named Ahab. Um, And so you're going to have to think, okay, Jezebel had wealth, power, connections. She was probably beautiful. You might want to look deeper than that. Might want to look deeper than that. Same thing if you're a guy. Same thing if you're a girl. You need to look deeper than that. Look deep. Look in the heart. What is going on with them in their heart? Are they humble before God? They may say that they're a Christian. A lot of people still do. But can you see evidence of repentance in their life? Are they soft before God? Do they want to follow after him? Who you go home to has tremendous influence. If you are married, you need to think you have an incredible role in your spouse's life. You can either lead them toward the grace of God in their moments of need, or you can lead them away from the grace of God. And the the humility and the posture of your heart toward your spouse makes a tremendous difference in where they will end up spiritually in life. So you walking with the Lord, is it is about your walk, but it's about how you impact your spouse as well. And it's an opportunity for all of us to on one hand, rejoice when our spouse helps us move in that direction and for us to also look internally and go, God, help me to grow as a husband or a wife as I lead this other person, have a leadership role in this other person's life that I'm married to. If you're not married, or other uh, examples of this, is that beyond marriage, you need to be very careful who your friends are. Who do you let into your life in moments when, when everything is kind of um, is challenging and you're really thinking through big questions. Um, what am I, 
not just like what am I going to do in terms of like what job or, or, what, or what college, that's important too, but, but who am I going to be? Where am I going to go? What am I gonna, who am I going to follow? Do you have friends that can encourage you in that? Who do you let in in those moments? Who you let in in those moments is going to be pretty important in your life. So Ahab kept bad company, and it lured him away from God's grace in this crucial moment. And his life would never be the same because of it. On the other hand, Elijah, because he's humble before God, his future spiritual direction flows in an opposite way. What it means is that he is humble and he trusts the Lord. And what that means is that he goes wherever God sends him. And God continues to lead Elijah not into easy but into difficult places. Here he's just been the prophet who's won this battle in a sense on the top of Mount Carmel. He's just seen the end of the curse of the drought. And now God calls him to Jezreel to the front doorstep of Jezebel when she learns all of this bad news. God calls him there, and he goes, and he responds. You see, when you follow God, it doesn't mean that he's going to lead you to all feasts and life-saving flood rescues. Uh, There's times when he leads you into hard places, but what you believe in those hard places that even there, God is with me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way in his now famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. If Christ is God, then we have no option. If Christ is God, then we have no option. We follow him. We follow him where he sends us, where he calls us. Theology leads to discipleship. The follower of Jesus follows Jesus. It's amazing to look on Facebook or Instagram, and people don't want to say they're Christians anymore because it's got a bad connotation, but they say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Cool. That's still really meaningful. The question is, do you? Do you follow Jesus? Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. It's the fundamental meaning of the term, do we follow Christ? But I want you to know that Elijah, though a good example, is not a perfect man. He's not perfect. There's only one hero in Christianity, one. That's Jesus Christ. You see, Elijah, though he goes and though he follows the Lord, when he learns, and we're going to spend time in the new year, actually, because we're going into Advent, we'll get into the rest of this this passage here, 1 Kings 19. Elijah gets afraid. He runs. I think he runs maybe because he's tired. We'll look at, at what it looks like to be burned out and where God finds us there. But Elijah's not a perfect man. You need to understand the difference between Elijah and Ahab does not lie in the greatness of their sin, but in the greatness of their God. No man can save themselves. Everyone has to look to Jesus Christ. For sure, Ahab was a far worse person morally than Elijah, but Elijah was flawed too. He was flawed too. Even Elijah isn't good enough for God on his own merit. Both Ahab and Elijah need the God who doesn't just set up the curses, but he actually bears the curses for his people on their behalf. Ultimately, they, before Christ and us after Christ, look to Christ as the one who would pay the penalty for our sin. No one can save themselves. Only Jesus Christ can save us. But the important thing lies 
yes, in understanding this truth, but also in our response to Jesus. Will you receive the grace of God humbly in a way like the first potential response of the Son to the Father's mercy? Will you receive that grace humbly? Will you follow Christ? Will you be a repenter? Will you, will you acknowledge your need for a Savior? Will you walk with Christ? Not perfectly, Elijah's not perfect, nobody's perfect, but will you genuinely seek to follow Christ? Or will you have a half-hearted response? Will you look upon the grace of the Father and you think that's amazing, but it doesn't go past your skin, it doesn't go past your stomach, it just goes there, it doesn't go any deeper. Will you follow Christ with humility or will you be half-hearted in your response? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace to us. Lord, we thank you that that grace to us was costly. Lord, it was costly for you to love us. So costly for you to continue to bear with us. So costly for you to die on the cross. So costly for you to have the Father, your Father, turn his face away from you because the sin that was piled up on you was so high and so gross that the Father had to turn his face away. We thank you that the cross was costly because we needed you to pay that cost. We are that needy. We are that, we're those kind of idolaters, Father. We follow after ourselves. We follow after false gods. Lord, we're so prone to wander, as the song says. Lord, we we're prone to leave the God that we love. Lord, we're thankful that you love us. We pray that our response to this costly grace would not be a cheap response, but be one that is commensurate with the cross, that we would follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts and sanctify us? Help us to be those people that when we find ourselves wandering, that we turn back and come to you. Father, I pray for your grace today in our lives, Lord. No one can stand in their own merit before you except for Jesus, the Son. So would we turn to him and find great grace in the reality of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name.